0: The Greensense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology, providing a sustainable modular indoor growing system. Visit CEATECHN.com to learn more. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Greensense, where we bring you eco-innovations that are changing your world. In April, 2022, Frontline created an epic, fact-based three-part docuseries about the power of big oil and its strategy to cast doubt about the impact of fossil fuels on climate change. In July, 2023, former Vice President Al Gore gave a blistering TED Talk about what the fossil fuel industry doesn't want you to know. He makes a passionate plea about how oil companies have a hammerlock on the climate change narrative and have been hiding the facts from the public. My guest this week is an attorney, and he's leveraged those emotions elicited from both those documentaries and the TED Talk into action. His groundbreaking lawsuit seeks nearly $52 billion against over a dozen fossil fuel companies. It's my pleasure to introduce attorney Jeffrey Simon. Welcome to the Sense Show. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be with you. Jeffrey, it's a real honor to have you on the show. You spent 30-plus years uh, fighting to protect uh, consumer rights and give a uh, voice to those who need it. You're the real lawyer behind the Netflix series uh, Painkiller, starring Matthew Broderick. You made national headlines by winning a historic $2 billion settlement with Johnson & Johnson and other pharmaceutical giants for opioid harm reduction in the state of Texas, Lawyers are good at telling stories. So tell us a funny or interesting or amusing story about your experience in the Netflix uh, documentary, uh, uh, Painkiller.
1: Sure. No, thank you. And I, yeah, I want to be clear that that series... It tells the story about things that I have been very actively engaged in and taking leadership roles for the last six years. But none of those actors are actually depicting me. I just want to be clear about that. <laughs> but, but, but having said that.
0: Thank you for the accuracy. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Having said that. The opioid epidemic that grips America now about 25 years old is the worst public health crisis related to a drug in the history of our nation. And at its outset, it was caused, and then for many years perpetuated, by drug company promotion of a dangerous lie, that the best, safest way to treat complaints of chronic pain in patients is to prescribe them addictive opioids for long periods of time, in high doses, And quite frankly, without any constraints whatsoever, because they're being taken on an outpatient basis. The idea that the answer to knee pain is a controlled substance and that this is an essential lifestyle drug was a narrative that companies like Purdue Pharma promoted. And it was false from the start and worse than that, because it was a narrative that actually took hold, changed medical school curriculum about how to treat pain in America, right? And we're paying the price for that now. Now, I and my law firm filed the first case in Texas on behalf of a governmental entity against Purdue Pharma, and then we filed several more. And I've done a lot of work on Purdue Pharma. And one of the things that I've done is I've produced a podcast called Outside Counsel, uh, and the first season is entirely about the nature, cause, and dimensions of the opioid epidemic. And one of my guests was Carol Panera. And Carol Panera was a sales representative for Purdue, Purdue Pharma. And her job was to attempt to get doctors to prescribe OxyContin to all of their pain patients in the highest dosage as possible for as long as possible. And she literally got paid more money as the doctors increased the dosages of this addictive drug to patients. That is how the company compensated her, a subject which is touched on uh, in the painkiller series. Not only that, she talked about on my show, and apparently she's even discussed with law enforcement in the past, that one of the ways in which she was uh, trained and required to promote the drug was the thesis that the drug was less addictive than other opioids, which not only didn't have a scientific basis, but worse, she was given a chart which had been manipulated to change the data to make it look like the peaks and valleys of the drug were more gradual in the bloodstream of patients than they really were. Thus, the thesis was it was less addictive because it created you know, less highs and fewer lows. And she talked about the fact that she brought to her co-workers' attention, hey, we're out there promoting a lie and it can cause great harm. What do we do about this? And one of her co-workers told her, you need to be focused on your retirement accounts. Think It's about
0: ter- terrible. And it doesn't see a $2 billion is a lot of money uh, uh, to, to, to most of us, but that doesn't seem punitive enough for these large uh, companies. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I agree with you. Two billions,
1: pretty, pretty good work if you can get it. But having said that, uh, you're right. There is much more work to be done. Uh, the opioid epidemic and the need for for harm reduction, for addiction treatment on demand, um, and for the overdose rescue drug Narcan to be widely distributed, and for people in you know emergency services and public settings to be trained in how to use it, and all of it is a more expensive problem than two billion dollars. Having said that, we're still working. We're still trying to execute more settlements. We've now over two point seven five billion, and this has become part of my life's work. And well, uh, I, I'm I'm going to see this through to the last penny, whatever that is.
0: Well, it's it's good to have people like that out there fighting the good fight. Thank you. And I I brought this up for two reasons, just to give a little background on who you are, and to tie it into our main feature about the uh, oil and gas industry. Uh, let's move on. Uh, uh, let's talk about your new book, Last Rights. It came out September 14th. In uh, uh, in it, you reveal how uh, corporate greed and political power sounds like a reoccurring theme out there have infiltrated our justice system cease our rights to a trial by jury now who do bench trials or trials with a judge and no jury benefit
1: well let me let me answer that in two parts one and i thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about the book um the book is available now for pre-order In other words, uh, it's actual full releases next month, but it's available right now for pre-order at Dorrance.com or at my website, JeffreyBSimon.com, and I think people will find a value in it. Um, And when you talk about a bench trial, um, bench trials certainly do occur in civil cases and they occur in criminal cases. But one of the arguments that I make in the book is the right to trial by jury is protected by the Seventh Amendment of the United States Constitution as one of the original Bill of Rights. It was ratified in 1792. Our framers thought that the most important aspect of how justice should be done in America is that Disputes that cannot be resolved be determined by our peers, people in our community. That's not to say that a judge is not a peer, but you understand the distinction I'm making. People who have the same types of experiences and often the same type of perspectives right, as the parties in the dispute who may themselves not have legal training nor be judges. And my book, Last Rights, exposes how large corporations and the politicians they pay are deliberately robbing you and every American consumer of their rights to hold bad companies that hurt or cheat them accountable to the judgments of juries, and how we must push back to restore our rights before we lose them forever. Because things like this one, we talk about cutting-edge issues in litigation, whether it's opioid or climate and so forth, and engage in debates Robust, excellent debates over what are the best uses of our civil justice system. But in boardrooms of some of America's largest corporations, wealthy power brokers plan for how they can most effectively dismantle or skew that system for their own gain. And my book calls that problem to attention and provides easy solutions that don't cost you a dollar, not easy to effectuate, but at least easy to engage in where we can begin to restore our rights. And if we do that, we will make ourselves
0: freer and more safe. Some can say a counter argument to that is that the uh, juries can be manipulated by school sk- skilled litigators and that there's a whole science and uh, uh, you know process in place to do that. So talk a little bit about you know the benefits and the equity or equitable rights of having a jury. Sure. In any human endeavor,
1: where matters are being debated you certainly will have people who give misinformation it happens in the political sphere it happens you know on all manner of social media discussions platforms and it certainly can happen in a courtroom but the difference is is that we have rules of evidence which govern whether or not a jury can hear something you know in the political sphere they can you know any kind of rhetoric can be spewed anywhere no matter you know how little support it has that is different in a courtroom our rules of evidence require that there be a substantive foundation for the offer of evidence and consideration by a jury and so while it is true that you can imagine a fact pattern where a jury is misled at least it provides a scrutinizing rigorous filter for what is much closer to true than what you will get in some political debate or in some social platform chat room.
0: Thank you, and the reason why I wanted to talk a little bit about the book was to, again, just build your credibility on this issue and how this uh, theme of corporate greed and political power is a theme we're gonna see more and more out there and, and in today's talk. But So let's get into that. Today's topic is uh, Big Oil, what they knew about their product's impact on climate change. Uh, let's start very simple the purpose of a corporation is to benefit its shareholders and provide a return on investment anything you'd like to add to that
1: well uh obviously i i believe in capitalism and i have no quarrel with for-profit businesses uh you know i'm in one um but that is never a license uh to harm the public through recklessness or misinformation and our lawsuit uh, attempts to hold uh, several companies in the petroleum industry uh, accountable in the civil justice system for what we allege was their having done that very thing.
0: Uh, so not all companies are good or bad. You know, there's, there's a spectrum out there. And sure. I was wondering if you could give me an example of an ethical corporation that provides a shareholder benefit and responsibly deals with its employees, its customers, and the environment.
1: Well, you know, I, I, I guess I would say, I don't know of some company that, that comes immediately to my mind and say, now that is a truly ethical company in juxtaposition to others, which is not to imply that there aren't many of them. There is nothing wrong with doing business as a corporation. There is a whole lot right with providing jobs and services and so forth for the public and nothing wrong with doing it with a profit motive. But, you know, as you noted astutely, Corporations are made up of people and people who have to manage, uh, you know, conflicts of interest, which is, you know, we can't do everything in the name of greed any more than, you know, we can do that in our own personal lives. And when companies don't manage their conflicts of interest in their desire to make money and juxtaposition to their need to do so responsibly and not harm others, uh, then, unfortunately, they commit acts which do harm others, and the civil justice system exists to hold them accountable. And big oil is a perfect example where you know uh, people can differ about the appropriateness of regulatory policy in allowing you know our ener- you know our, our energy systems to be largely fossil fuel based. But what is undeniable is that fossil fuel burning pollutes the atmosphere with carbon dioxide and that carbon dioxide dramatically heats the surface temperature of the earth and causes weather extremes. And even if we say to ourselves, as some groups might, well, we made that choice. We didn't exactly make that choice because what we allege is, is that the companies that were profiting from it lied to the public about what the environmental impact would be. They never said to companies to to communities like the Pacific Northwest, Multnomah County, where my client is, did you know that because of carbon pollution that we've been putting into the atmosphere for the last 50 years and, you know, engorging ourselves with massive profits, that it could be 116 degrees in June in Portland when the natural temperature, the high would be about 78, and that it would be like that for three days in a row, and that in the most sort of you know, highly developed in, ter- in terms of physical structure, parts of downtown Portland. It'll be 124, which is absolutely totally uninhabitable to humans. And did you well, know that? Right, go, ahead.
0: go ahead. I mean, before we get into that, I just wanted to follow up in this sort of line of thought. Here yeah. is that in my observations, it seems like more big companies these days are acting badly or unethically. However, you went way you want to quantify that. But this isn't my area of expertise. It's the ballpark you play in. Do you have any data to support this observation, or am I out of bounds here?
1: No, I, I look. I I think your instincts are right. Um, the data that I would point you to is this: the opioid epidemic was the largest drug-related public health crisis in our history, and it wasn't created by an evil shadowy foreign cartel. It was created by some of America's largest drug companies, which hatched a marketing plan to lie about the true safety, safety safety, and effectiveness profile of drugs for the purpose of making more money and expanding exponentially the number of patients who take these addictive drugs. But once we you know, opened Pandora's box, we opened a whole new problem which is the problem of illicit fentanyl, which now is an illicit opioid rather than a prescription one, but kills more Americans every day and every year than any prescription opioid that preceded it. By the same token, big oil, we contend, and this is well-supported in lots of peer-reviewed published literature by historians who are experts in the field like Professor Naomi Oreskes at Harvard, at Jeffrey Supan, at the University of Miami. Oil companies understood, according to their work, over 40 years ago, that their unchecked production of fossil fuels would cause increased accumulation of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which would then trap heat when it radiates off the surface temperature of the earth and would push that heat downward. And that as the temperature of the earth began to rise, which they predicted according to these papers, would become dramatically evident by the beginning of the early 20th century, which it did, it would by 2030 cause extreme weather events that would make temperate climates uninhabitable, which is what's happening. And so when you think about how companies could make that decision we're just going to do this anyway. That's pretty compelling evidence to your point that there seems to be a tipping point in malfeasance, not just the amount of harm it causes.
0: So I look back at Enron and uh, the government's uh, response to that was Sarbanes-Oxley, which had, which had some very onerous uh, uh, requirements in there for CEOs, like they'd go to jail if they misreported financials. And it seemed to curb behavior for a while. But as you said, now it seems like the cat's out of the bag and you're seeing this more and more often out there. Any thoughts? Yeah. You know,
1: my, my only thought, you know, goes back to the theme of my book, which is not a shameless plug. It's what I really believe, which is that regulation has failed to protect the public in the areas of prescription opioids and in the areas of carbon pollution. And so has diplomacy. But the civil justice system did work to hold particular companies in the opioid supply chain accountable such that they stopped recklessly promoting these drugs to doctors and dentists as essential lifestyle drugs. And they stopped distributing these drugs in a a, a reckless um, and unrestrained way, like they had been. The hope is. That certain companies in the petroleum industry, who were the worst actors, will be held accountable in the civil justice system in ways which force them to modify their behavior, at least insofar as telling the truth to the public about the environmental impact of this work. I mean, as you pointed out earlier, you know, that you have a political dynamic here where you have a bunch of people who, you know, for political reasons exploit the idea that either human climate change is a myth or it's exaggerated. Well, those were the talking points and the marketing strategy, we allege, of big oil companies dating back to the 1980s. And we're not guessing about that. There are documents that say it, that their goal is to sow doubt where they otherwise know there is a scientific consensus and exploit that doubt so they could keep making money hand over fist.
0: So let's talk a little bit about big oil. You know, they have immense power uh, that these companies wield. And I was involved with the oil industry early in my career. And I saw firsthand that they can build cities in remote locations to extract the crude. I worked in Siberia and saw what they could do in the middle of nowhere, which is quite amazing and powerful. They also have the clout to shape government tax policies. When you start looking at the tax policies and see the benefits they get, it's incredible. and they also have influence to create federal energy strategies under the protection of national security. Again, very, very powerful. In your opinion, do you think these companies have become too powerful and our monopoly laws are outdated and they don't work to control this power?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's part of the point I make in the book, which is that they can shape regulatory policy and shape reshape the civil justice system to serve their own ends rather than the ends that were intended by our framers and you know inscribing the right to trial by jury in in the Bill of Rights and that we've let it happen. It's happened in plain sight. And uh, it may sound populist, but it's no less true. We all are harmed by allowing that to happen and there are things we can do that we must. And one of them is, We need to support candidates for political office or judicial positions who believe robustly in the right to trial by jury, right, rather than ones that support so-called tort reform, which is never, ever about turning a wrong into a right, but rather simply depriving your right.
0: Um. Companies are not homogenous. You know, they have factions within them that fight and and uh, they've got people that are good people that do the right thing. And there's people that do the bad thing, right? What did big oil companies know about the harm its fossil fuel products would cause versus what they told the public? If you could just sort of lay that out for the listeners.
1: Sure. What we intend to prove is that in the 1980s, even going back to the 1970s, but in the 1980s, some of these big oil companies had some of the best climate scientists in the world. And they were specifically tasked with examining the question of what is the environmental impact on uh, of our fossil fuel activities? And should we be searching for alternative sources of energy that have less environmental impact? And how much time do we have to do that? When would increased carbon pollution from our unabated activities make an appreciable and harmful difference on climate and because they had some of the best science scientists in the world they wound up getting really elegant really candid uh, uh, assessments which turned out to be true they were they were told in the 1980s many of them by their own scientists hey look all right we're now at a little over 300 you know, Uh, uh, we're now at a little over 300 parts per million of carbon dioxide uh, 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 pollution. And when we're going to 400, that's where we're going. And we're going to be there in just a little over 20 years if we don't change. And once we get there, all hell's going to break loose. That is exactly what happened. There are peer-reviewed published papers that looked at the accuracy of the internal climate scientists at companies like Exxon, that was one of them, and determined that the forecast they were getting internally turned out to be accurate. Instead of modifying their behavior, those companies we allege doubled down by saying, well shoot, the money's too good. We're going to sow doubt wherever we can, we're going to literally go out and promote the message that climate science is unpredictable, highly speculative, unreliable. And the idea that the burning of fossil fuels is changing the weather or is going to change the weather or is going to change the weather in a way that adversely affects you living in America, as opposed to a polar bear you know, uh, at, at the North Pole, um, is either non-existent or remote. It's just not going to happen. In fact, ExxonMobil, mobile before it was ExxonMobil, placed an ad in the New York Times every Thursday, every week for 20 years, and most of them denied the existence of human-made climate change from the burning of fossil fuels. At the same time, their own climate scientists were telling them it was all too real. That is what we allege and intend to prove.
0: Well, when you have good people in a corporation that are doing good research reporting the facts how do you keep them quiet well that's a very interesting question
1: again a very astute one as well so um some of those people are starting to testify there are climate scientists from exxon uh, who have given congressional testimony and uh at least one of whom i know Justified uh, in the Massachusetts attorney general's case on climate accountability, where they said, hey, we told them. we told them." I mean, I find it terribly distressing. You know, one of them even used the word immoral that they, they that they took the information that we gave them and essentially pocketed it and went out and told the public something different. So the truth is starting to come out, but it's coming out as a result of the civil justice system. Right. There you go.
0: Well, yeah, it's it's disheartening. It really is. Uh, did you see the Frontline series? I don't know that I did. Oh, you should watch it. It's really a fantastic, fact-based, in-depth docu-series. It reached millions. Uh, Al Gore, uh, did you see his TED Talk? It was last month.
1: Uh, yeah, I saw that. And, of course, I saw his movie back 20 years ago, for which he was.
0: Well, this 20 TED 20 Talk years. was very passionate, and he was okay. very upset and uh, it reached millions. And so my question is, is now that there's transparency on this issue, and and a lot of the things you've talked about, they raised in both of these. They showed some of the uh, scientists in the Frontline series that were working on this and did the research. Um, So why, after this has come out uh, and raised public awareness, how come that's ineffective in shaping these oil companies' behavior? A lot of companies are worried about their image.
1: It it may go down to the first point you made, which is they may just have so much money they don't have to care.
0: (laughs) That's sad. (laughs) Well, when you look at shaping behavior, there's a number of ways to do that. One's positive reinforcement. You give somebody a carrot. The other's negative reinforcement. You give them a stick. And then the last one's punishment, jail fines, litigation, sanctions. And, uh, you know, that's the tact that you're taking. And, in, in Al Gore's talk, he talked about that, that, you know, we need to take the gloves off. These companies have way too much money to play nice. And I pulled up some data today. Five oil companies pulled in a record $200 billion in profits, $200 billion in 2022. You're suing 12 oil companies for a record $52 billion. Is that big enough to, to get them to to shape their behavior and bring about change?
1: well it's reflective of the damages that we believe we can prove that they've you know 50 there was at least 50 million dollars in damages caused by the heat dome itself you know that were inflicted upon multnomah county that even if we started today if the the companies we sued said okay you're right we're we're just going to fund a harm reduction program centered around making this uh, community heat resilient, which we don't expect them to just call us up and do. You know, right. um, it, it would take a significant amount of time to implement it. And that as a result of the carbon pollution, which is already there and will continue to increase. There will be more heat events. In fact, there have been more heat-related deaths in Multnomah County since the Pacific Northwest heat dome of 2021. And the problem is going to continue to worsen because not only is the pollution that's there going to stay there for no less than 100 years, we continue to add to it, right? Three parts per million every year. And so and so, um, there's a billion dollars in more harm that will be inflicted even if, We started today with an agreement with them that they were going to fund a harm reduction program. And then it will take at least $50 billion to reimagine Multnomah County, in terms of infrastructure and emergency services and all of it, to deal with temperatures at 116 degrees on a cyclical basis. Because this is not Phoenix. It wasn't built for this. You have to reimagine the entire sort of urban planning of that whole community, and it'll take time, and it's expensive.
0: Well, oil companies employ an army of attorneys, both uh, internal and external, and they know how to use the court system to drag out a case and increase the cost cost of litigation. If you can share, who's your client, and how do you fund litigation of this magnitude?
1: Sure. Well, you're right. And it's true that a country lawyer like me doesn't have the resources of exile. Billions
0: of, <laughs> or shit you, can take, you can take a portion of the opioid <laughs> proceeds, but I can't imagine what litigation would cost for this.
1: <laughs> but you're right. Um, their goal is to prevent this case from ever being heard by a jury if they can. That's their goal. And to delay it for as long as possible and they have already begun that strategy. They removed the case to federal court, even though we contend that uh, the law is very settled, um, that uh, the case is appropriately filed in state court, uh, and that there is no federal jurisdiction over the case. But we contend, even knowing that, they removed it anyway just for, for the sake of delay. But we'll have that fight out. And then when the case comes back to state court, which we believe it will, You know, then they'll file various motions to dismiss, all of which allege that we haven't expressed any theory that's recognized by law, and we'll fight that out and so forth. That's just part of it. You're right. That is just part of it. And you have to have the resolve and the resources uh, to see it through. Um, But in terms of either the resolve or the resources to see it through – uh, this is not my first rodeo, as we say here in Texas. Uh, you know, when we were dealing with big pharma in opioid litigation, we were dealing with the same types of obstacles and we're familiar with them and and we're girded for the fight.
0: Well, let's talk about that. You have experience in winning as the underdog. Uh, what have you learned from litigating that o- opioid with the opioid companies that can be applied to the oil companies?
1: Well, the theory of both cases uh, is pretty similar in other words the core allegation uh in the the opioid litigation a, a, apart from fraud the allegation that you lied about the harm that your product would do is public nuisance that uh there has been an enormous amount of of resources that have been expended because of the problem you have made the harm that you have caused And that not only have you created that problem, but now it's going to take an enormous amount of money to fix that problem because it perpetuates itself, right? Addiction perpetuates itself, unfortunately, and continues to inflict harm. And so here you have a similar theory that you have polluted the atmosphere in a way that not only caused this enormous harm, but will continue to cause enormous harm um and you have in that respect created a public nuisance which has to be abated that's the legal term and you should you the wrongdoers as we allege should have to provide the resources to do that
0: so jeffrey uh government seems to have very little bite when it comes to managing and governing these ultra large uh, companies in your opinion what needs to change
1: well you know From a political perspective, which is not the point of our lawsuit, um, you know, obviously uh, human-made climate change is an existential threat. There's no two ways about it. I mean, and, you know, any political ideology, you know, that allows one to not only deny but advocate for the denial that carbon pollution from the burning of fossil fuels, you know, is causing catastrophic weather events, that, that's like denying gravity. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're a progressive or a conservative or something in the middle. You know, if if you jump up, you will come down. <laughs> this is exactly the same thing. No matter how you feel about, uh, you know, fossil fuel production, the simple fact of the matter is, is that it creates pollution, which is destroying the planet through extreme weather events and that it's going to continue to do that. And, you know, how you get people on what I'll just call the the far political right, the people who scream at John Kerry during his testimony that climate change is a grift, you know, you're just going to have to find the political will to expose that lie as part of the problem that has to be remedied and that people like that are simply using talking points. They may not even know it. they were given they are using the talking points of doubt and denialism. That was the market strategy we will
0: demonstrate of the oil companies that are manipulating. Well, this is a pretty heavy topic, so I thought maybe we'd lighten it up a bit. Uh, tell me your favorite attorney joke. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to have one.
1: <laughs> I do. Uh, uh, what is the difference between a lawyer and a guppy? I don't know. One is a bottom-dwelling
0: scum sucker, and the other is a fish. (laughs) And I won't say which one. All right. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for lightening up. And here's a heavy question. Bottom line, what good is winning a $52 billion settlement uh, in two, five, or ten years if the planet's so hot, crops don't grow, bodies of water dry up, and people die?
1: Well, your point, which is correct, which is that you know the change in our w- climate is worldwide and not just centered around Pacific Northwest, which is you know the locale of of the case where that we have filed. Um, having said that, um, we can and will save lives there if we can get the resources to do it. If we can get the resources to make that community heat resilient in a way it never was and of course we need that for the whole world and moreover you know you can't do it forever anyway if you're going to keep superheating the planet well and it's like eating your own tail but 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 the civil justice system has limitations and those limitations are that you know within the bounds of the law we can hold wrongdoers financially accountable for the harm they do but obviously we can't we can't change the weather uh, with, with the civil justice system, and we can't necessarily change policy, but we can do what we can do.
0: Yeah, and time's our enemy here because, as you said, we, we, we get a cumulative accumulation of uh, carbon each year. All right, any closing thoughts?
1: No, other than my thanks. You, you were lovely to allow me to, to to visit with you and your audience. And I thank you for, for the interest in my work. I, it's very validating
0: for me. Well, thank you for being on greenSense Show. And more importantly, it's great to uh, work with you and know that there's someone out, out there that is looking after uh, these interests.
1: I appreciate that. Sure. Try it.
0: My guest this week, author, attorney, and friend to protecting consumer rights and those who need a voice, Jeffrey Simon, exposing the facts about climate change and fossil fuels. Visit thegreenscenshow.com to learn more about sponsorship. I'm Robert Colangelo. Thank you for listening to Green Sense. Check out the Green Sense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on 105.9 FM WBBM Chicago. GreenSense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology, providing a sustainable modular indoor growing system. Visit CEATECHN.com to learn more.